You know, last week we kind of jumped into 1 John, and we're going to go back there, a battle for truth. Um, and 1 John, 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, these little short epistles, the last two are just one chapter long. First um, John is five chapters, and we're going we're just going to kind of speed through it. How's that? If you'll just hang hang on with me, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground this evening. Um, John was writing to churches, and the, you get the feel that he has a personal connection because he keeps calling them little children, my little children. He refers to them in this personal way that he's, but he sees danger. He sees danger coming their way, and he's alerting them about that danger. And the danger is false teaching that people are presenting. And mind you, they did not have the New Testament. He was writing the New Testament. He was writing portions. And this wasn't the last thing he wrote. The last thing he wrote was the book of Revelation, the the last book. But he wrote a lot. You take the Gospel of John, these three epistles, and Revelation, that's a lot. He and... Uh, Paul had the most, he, well, I guess you throw Luke in there. That's a lot of coverage in those three guys in the New Testament. But they do, there wasn't a New Testament. It wasn't like a manual. Jesus left him this book and says, just do this. Here's the outline. Just do this. This is the way you go about it. This is how you start churches. He just sent them out with what he had taught them in their head and in their heart. And so John senses that there's enough time passed that people are trying to come in and say things about Jesus is not true. They're trying to create a different Jesus. So this is what he's attacking. He's going after this false teaching. So if you have your Bibles, uh, look, let's look at 1 John 3. And we're going to jump right into it. And we're going to read the three chapters, so just... Hang in here if you uh, can pull it up on your phone or um, we have some Bibles up here if anybody doesn't have any of those devices. Anybody need one? All right, this is First John chapter 3. And uh, so, anybody else? Okay. I don't have my glasses, so I can't read. Well, you just... Make him read. Okay. Let me... Turn there to it so you don't have to try to find it. It's kind of hard to find in the back here, back here. This is Tim preaching. Hey, Tim. This is first time. Are y'all glad to see Tim here tonight? Thanks for coming, buddy. Bless you. And this is where we're going to be starting is in chapter 3. So, good to see you, man. Love you. Um, you know, we... If you memorize in King James, it's like, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. But this is the way it starts is, uh, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are, that the reality of God telling us we belong to Him. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. If it's not exactly what you're reading, I'm reading out of New American Standard. 
It says we have this hope, and, and the word hope here is not like what we use hope. hope. We use hope as a wish. I hope this works out. That's really, there's not a whole lot of confidence in that statement, is there? The word they use for hope is a, a confident assurance that something's going to happen. It's not a wish. It is their certain, this is why they call the, the return of Jesus the blessed hope. Is that it's not, there's not a, a doubt whether it's going to happen or not. We just don't know when. And he says, people who have this revelation, what revelation? That we don't know what we're going to be like when all of this is changed and we're given a new body created all new after what Jesus is like. We do know this, and he says, we're going to become like him. And it says, those who have this hope in them, that that's a purifying effect in your life. You, you live differently when you have this. You know, I was talking with someone just the other day about, you know, um, what's on the other side of this life. And he said, well, that's scary. I said, well, uh, I don't think, I think most people want to live. I said, but for those who know what's on the other side, it, it's not a fear thing. It's more like, I want to see my grandkids get married. And uh, I want to see them, uh, we're both hanging on to the hope that we will be great-grandparents one day, but we don't need Micah to become a dad at 16, you know. <laughs> He, he'll turn 13 in July, so it's like, well, you know, we got a little wait here before we become grin. It, those are the sort of things that start, when I think about my own mortality, is like, you know, I, I want to be with my family. I, I want to do as much as I can for the Lord. But in reality, when you think about it, it's kind of like one of my, my best friends, Joe Shirley, when somebody would pass away, he says, you know what, I kind of envy him. Because i got to get up the next day and, and go to a construction site that's got all kinds of problems. <laughs> he says, don't have to worry about the problems of life. But this is what he says. When you know that that's the truth, that that's the bottom line, it says it has a purifying effect on us. And, and the hope that is there is kind of like it's the same word that you find in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. Now about these three, faith, hope, and love, charity. But the greatest of these is love. But he says that faith, hope, and love. And when you go through First John, if not tonight, I want you to just be on the alert. Have a radar going on in your mind. How much is faith celebrated in this uh, epistle? How much is love celebrated? It's easy to pick out that love is all over the place here. But also there's this hope <coughs> factor that he has in this. Verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Now, what is it, uh, your rendering? Is that what it says? Lawlessness? Okay. Um, and sin is lawlessness. You know that, uh, that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In Christ there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. Boy, that's a profound statement. He said, oh, wait a minute, just hang on. It's going to be qualified here in just a moment. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, John uses two different words here for sin. He says, 
Everyone who practices sin, that's harmatia. Those who break the rules, break the commandments, do things that are wrong, the very actions that we call sin. He says, that is lawlessness, which is not really an action. It's a disposition of soul. In other words, it's a person who rejects the sovereignty of God, the right of God to govern our lives. They don't want God telling them what to do. That's the lawless. That's iniquity. That's anomia. Nomos is mean rule or law. Anomos, anomia, means no law, no order, no structure, no accountability. And this is, this is the exact word that's used in Matthew when Jesus says in his, in his statement that the people who will come to him and says, oh, we did this and this and this. And he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's translated iniquity in the King James here, but it's anomia, it's lawlessness. And what he was saying is that it didn't matter what you were doing because in your heart you were doing it for the wrong reason and you weren't doing it for me because you don't know me and I don't know you. I don't know who you are. That's what he says to him. I don't know you. Who are you? You're claiming that you know me, but you really lived a life of lawlessness, a life of iniquity. So he uses these two words. But John is about to warn the people about going off track, getting off the course. How many of you know if you're lost, it doesn't, if, if you're out and about and you're lost, it doesn't matter how little or big you're lost. <laughs> if you don't, in fact, a lot of times we don't even know how lost we are. And we could be like one block away. You know, I've been there and done that. It's kind of an odd feeling. But he's about to warn them in verse 7. says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And here's an interesting, watch this. The one who practices sin is of the devil. N notice he didn't say the one who practices sin is sinful. He said the one who practices righteous righteousness is righteous. But the one who practices sin is of the devil. Why is that? Do you see that rendering? Because he says the devil was, was the author of all of this. He was, he, he was a rebellious, a sinner from the beginning. He sinned from the very beginning. And he says the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So no one who is born of God, listen to this. This, is, this ought to wake some people up. No one who is born of God practices sin. In other words, a continuum of sin. Why? It gives you the why here. Because God's seed, God's life abides in him and he cannot sin. He cannot have just a life of sin when you're born of God. There's a struggle inside of us with certain things that we might struggle with, but but the reason there is a struggle is that we have the nature of God warring against these temptations that we have to get off track. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. How, how's the two obvious? Or should we say they should be obvious? <laughs> We're not sure about how obvious it is now. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God 
nor the one who does not love his brother. Oh, here comes love now. This, here's what he's talking about when he mentions love is one of the evidences of being born of God. Love for others, for a fellow believer. He said this is what like characterizes who is born of God. And in the next verse, he uses Cain as an example of what he's talking about. Um, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew and, or murdered his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? What does it say? Because his deeds were evil. He was of a different spirit. His brother was righteous. You know, th this is the thing, is that these were not strangers. These were like in the first family. And Cain was the oldest boy. He was first, and then he had more time to absorb what Adam and Eve taught him. And here comes a younger brother, Abel, and Cain decided that he wasn't going to do things God's way. It wasn't that he brought vegetables to present to God. It was that he brought what he wanted to bring to God and not what he realized that God wanted. It was actually he was rejecting God's authority over him, and this is why it says he was evil. He had this evil side to him. Verse 13, don't be surprised, brother, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We love each other. We are not in that. Cain-like spirit. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It's a powerful statement. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You have words and you have actions, and they should match, right? They should match. But when they don't match, which one determines truth? Actions. Actions always determines the nature of something. How a response takes place. And when there's a consistent response of repentance and turning to God, we know that that's God's Spirit working in us. But he said that he that hates his brother is a murderer. Verse 19, we will know by this, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart. This is to me is one of the great verses in First, first John. If, if, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. In other words, if you, you can beat up yourself pretty good, but what does God say about you? God is greater than your heart. And whatever we ask, we receive him in because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment. Verse 23, 
that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. And we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So, when God's Spirit resides in us, it causes us to have His disposition, His viewpoint, His perspective. doesn't mean we're perfected by that, but it means that we have a compass in us now, something that helps us direct our actions and our responses, and also that convicts us. And he says, when, when we abide in him and he abides in us, it means we have a relationship with God and he's affecting our thinking, affecting our actions, our words. And John laid it out that this is how transformational living takes place. This is how we're to live our lives as believers. Um, and I'm going to jump right into uh, chapter 4 because I think it really... All, all through this, he's talking to people about there's danger all around you, and there's danger internally, and there's danger externally. And it looks like chapter 3 is about qualifying your own heart and your own soul and, and coming to a conclusion as to where are you? Where do we land there? And then he talks about what's coming after you outside of you. And, and can I just caution you? It's just not good to become a fan of any one particular preacher or book writer. Because nobody has all the angles, including me. I, this is why I, I read and I listen to podcasts, and I listen to preaching, because I, I need to grow. And uh, if you hear things, you need to check it. If you read it, you need to check it. When someone quotes a scripture, you need to check it. What's the context of that? What, what, what's the surrounding theme of that? And he's really talking to them. He's warning to them about, you need to test the spirits. This is how he starts chapter 4. He's telling them, test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Already there's false prophets in this young church. The church couldn't, have, couldn't be 30 years old. You know, this was probably 30, 35 years at the most since Jesus died and rose again. So we just didn't have a long period of time for somebody to really mess it up. They're already trying to mess it up. And he's writing to these believers says, oh, stay put. You need to test and see what you're listening to. By this you know the Spirit of God. Boy, there's so many of these statements all through here. By this you will know the Spirit of God. This is a good test right here. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That sounds like a simple statement, but in that day and time, people were saying that Jesus really didn't come in a physical body, and he didn't really die a physical death. That was all a phantom. That didn't happen. And so they were actually gutting the very heart of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for us in our place, really died. He, was really, he really had a body. He really died. He really was raised from the dead. All of this was in real life. And so he says, if you hear any other confession, watch out. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. John talks more about the Antichrist in this little book 
1 John than anywhere else in the Bible. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because, boy, you haven't heard quoted this before, have you? For greater is he that is in you than he that, who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It just, you can determine if you're speaking God's truth and somebody doesn't want to listen, that ought to be like a red flag. And he's telling them because he doesn't want them getting off into error. You know, really this is kind of like in the middle of a sermon, but do you hear anything that sounds like Jesus talking in this? When he says... We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. And who is not from God does not listen to us. Did Jesus ever make a statement kind of like that? Yeah, in John 8, they ask him, well, who is your father? And he said, well, you don't know me or my father. And if you knew me, you'd know my father. And you don't know him, you don't know me. You don't know either one of us. <laughs> That's why you don't recognize me, because you can't recognize him when you see him. And this is the same thing, John says. If they won't listen to us, it means they're not with us. And if they're not going to speak back toward us, the things of God, then that's a key sign to us that we don't need to be listening to them. So here comes the evidence. This is verse 7. And I'm going I'm to try to fly through this before, you know, we get to that time where people are starting really ready to go home. <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That is a theme all through this, of being born of God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Isn't that interesting? The essence of God is love. So what should be in us? One of the factors that should be in us, dynamics, is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that, that we might live through him. It's John 3, 16, looking backward. That he sent his son, and, and, and John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. The love of God is shown in him sending his son. And in this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, is verse 10. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's only one, one atoning work for us and for the remission of our sins is the cross. The cross is our cancellation of our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us that way, we also ought also to love one another. If his love that did that for us while we were sinners... He, his love comes into us. He says, this is what we should be looking like. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And that word is mentioned a couple times, completed in us. There's a, there's a process for us to get into the presence of God in such a way that we become more and more like what he wants us to be. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in uh, the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. There's this union we have with the living God. Isn't that amazing? That we share His life, His DNA. You know, there's people. You know, um, there's some people's children. You know who they belong to. Just by looking at them. I don't look anything like my dad. But you put a wig on me and I look a little bit like my mom. Poor thing. But because I think I have the chromosomes that I have, my nose is bigger than her nose, but it's shaped like her nose. But this is what he's saying is like we have God's DNA in us. He abides in us. We have something of him in us. And he says, shouldn't that show? Shouldn't that show that we have spiritual DNA in us, that God lives in us? This is verse 17. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. Have you ever kind of wondered what that really means? I think it means this. You cannot have a rush of love going on and a rush of fear going on at the same time. And the settling of love in us will drive out fear. When a disposition of us knowing the embrace of God, no matter how painful a situation we may have around us, it is this amazing thing that God can bring us peace in the midst of such chaos. And the thing that happens is that his love suffocates the fear that would be there. This anxiety, this, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how this is going to work out. And that creates this anxiety. All of a sudden... When God's love pushes in, it cancels out that fear. Because fear involves punishment, he says, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And let me tell you, it does not work in reverse order. Charity is not the same as loving someone. Because if you have children, you have to love them. <laughs> Tough sometimes, right? Tough love. Because you love them. You're not, you're not going to be charitable when they're not, they're not, shouldn't be rewarded with charity. But when we love and God loves, it shows that we belong to him. That we have this commandment that we have from him, that one who loves God should love his brother also. So when we, when we, we you know, I just hope and pray that the people that are closest to me can correct me if they see me getting off somewhere or not, not doing something right or like, you know, I don't understand what 
how you approached that and how you did that. And, you know, I'd rather them come to me and say, you know, I think you kind of blew that. Cared enough to say that to me. It's like, you know what? Yeah, I should have reacted better there. That's love. It wouldn't be charitable for us to just say, hey, how you doing? And then walk away and say, oh, boy, they're about to mess up. <laughs> you know, if they don't stop what they're doing, they're going to blow a fuse. Well, that's not really the kind of love that we should have for one another. It's not charity here. And it's not like when there's a telethon on television and we feel sorry for someone and we make a donation and some of these people really like their name and the donation on television. I wonder if that's really out of generosity or what. This is some great stuff here. It's just, it's not complicated. John is not writing in a complicated way. But boy, it's profound. When he talks about all this, this has got deep, this is really neat stuff here. Um, well, let's jump in chapter 5 and I think we'll be all right. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. We can't love God without loving the people of God. That's the whole point. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. We know we love His people when we love Him and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not like restrictive. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world. What? Our faith. You know, this doesn't show up too much. You have a lot of confessing, but believing is the, is the active word of faith. The two words are the same. One is noun, one of them is the acting. It wouldn't sound right to say, I've been faithing lately. You know, I've been believing, but it's the same word as faith. I've been trusting in this. But here he says, what overcomes the world? It is our faith anchored in him that overcomes everything that's thrown at us. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes, there he is. That, that's that same word. It's just the verb form of it. It's the same thing as faith, but it's the verb form of it. But who, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood. And, and we're going to get into a little tricky place here in just a moment. So, so hold on. You might have some questions that I won't be able to answer. But we'll get there. And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and with blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. In other words, the water is his is the launch of his ministry and, and his water baptism where the anointing of the Spirit came upon him. And, his, and the cross is referenced with the blood. So this is the conclusion of his ministry of redeeming us. It is the Spirit who testifies of that reality. That is the Spirit of truth. There are three that, that bear witness. And you might have a translation here that one of these verses is going to be missing because the manuscript... Uh, there's a little difference in manuscripts, and it's okay. Some people get kind of bent out with that, but he's, I'm just going to read verse 7 in this translation. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and blood, and the three are in agreement. The Holy Spirit is already active in this redeeming process. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. 
For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. In other words, if someone rejects the gospel, they're actually saying, that's all a lie. And they're making God out to be a liar. That seems scary to me. Right? But it's, it, it does kind of like, well, that's right. If, if, if I told you something and you says, well, I don't believe you, then what are you saying? I'm lying. <laughs> it's kind of hard like, to, to take that personally. You know, like, okay, you don't believe me. But this is what he's saying about the message of Christ is that those who don't believe that are saying that this is all a lie. And they make God out to be a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. This is a testimony that God spoke. God so loved the world that God sent his son into the world to redeem us. And someone says, well, I don't believe that. Then you're saying that he didn't do that or you believe he lied about doing that. Are you following me? And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You know, I think we've done a disservice to people in making sometimes salvation easy believism. You say, uh uh-huh, to a few questions, and you're saved. You're not saved unless you're born again. You've got to be born in here, born again. These things I've written to you, I mean, he's about to finish this, this book up. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. And boy, here's where it gets a little tricky. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There's a sin that leads to death. I do not say he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. And I really can't tell you what all that means. (laughs) Yes, other than we can participate through intercessory prayer in seeing people rescued. Even when they look like they're not willing to stop doing what they're doing. In our, in, and I really think my mom did this kind of intercessory prayer with my brother that she refused. She kind of put herself between my brother and hell and refused to let him get killed before being saved, you know, and he was doing everything that he could wrong. Everything he could do wrong, he was doing wrong. All the rules that he knew, he tried to break all of them. But she was there, and I I really think that this is kind of like maybe what he's talking about, is that if someone is not 
like committing blaspheming of the Holy Spirit that's maybe the sin unto death. I don't really know what that is. And, and you can read, you can get commentaries. You can, I've read commentaries on this, and they're kind of like, they're, they're a little hesitant to say, well, this is what it means. But it does seem to suggest that we can do intercessory prayer for someone who's not living right. And what they're doing is not a sin unto death, but we're kind of like an intermediary that we can cry out to God for them. And God hears us. Because God wants to save them more than you want them to be saved. You know, my, the, the, the thing that kind of hit me is when my brother got saved is that God, I realized that God wanted to save him more than I wanted God to save him. As much as I was praying for him, everybody was praying for him. No wonder he was so miserable. Everybody was praying for him. Verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins. And he comes back to this about a life of sin. But he who has been born of God keeps him, and the evil one, evil one does not lay a glove on him. Does, can't do anything about it. The devil cannot do anything about your salvation. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Outside of us, we know who's, who's wreaking havoc in people's lives. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. And I think the concluding words are the most interesting <laughs> conclusion. After the, all of this discussion, little children, guard yourselves from idols. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I don't even know uh, how to put that into all of this, like the discussion is going so great, and all of a sudden, by the way, stay away from idols. <laughs> Don't let idols get into your life. And and I think maybe he's he knows that there's so much around them that it'd be easy to get focused on something else. And and we don't have that problem, do we? With so much stuff around us that we. <laughs> You know, there's probably more people crossing the center line on highways today than ever. And it's because they're not focused. They, they're distracted with their phone or with something, and they're fiddling with something. And, and, and it's kind of like that spiritually is that we can have so much going on around us. He said, watch out, that could be an idol trying to work its way into your life, pulling your allegiance gradually away from the Lord into this activity or this thought or this idea or this relationship or, you know, something, something, something's lurking around there. Um, Diane wanted to get my book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, and I said, you, you sure you want to read that? <laughs> do you know what that book is about? Yeah, I think I do. I was like, okay, you know, it's two demons writing letters to each other. And uh, I says, yeah. I said, okay. <laughs> I said, but you can kind of think about as you're reading that is how would demons strategize against us? Where, we, we know where they would, like, let's work on that. 
that's an easy spot to get them off track, right? And this is maybe what he's saying. is like there's things out there lurking around you that you're, you're, you're really focused on the big thing, and that is people who don't confess Jesus is the Son of God. But what about little things that are not that blatant lie, but they're out here and they can pull your allegiance away from the Lord? That's just Charles Lynn's commentary on that last sentence. Because I have no idea where that fits with everything else. Do you have a, any questions on any of this? This is a great little book. And the reason why it's so good is that it's, it's simple, but it's profound. But man, he lays it down to where he divides the group. He does. He divides the group. We know who we's are and we know who they's are. You know, it's, it's us and them. And he tries to qualify. All them who say they're from us, they're not from us. And they're not like us. Because they're not saying the same thing we're saying. Right? 